my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. As a lawyer, I knew it wasn't going to work when I was writing prospectuses in the corporate department. And we sat at lunch one day after about six or nine months, and a partner came over and said that there was a change to the disclosure laws that the SEC came out with, and that from now on, there's going to be a new way that you write paragraph 12B6. <laughs> and I was at a table with like six really bright people that I really liked that were doing the same thing as me. And they lit up. They were excited. I remember thinking to myself, I could care less. How am I going to compete with this group? They're bright, they're hardworking, and they love this stuff. I remember going home that day and thinking to myself, I got to find something else that I love. That's the journey I think that we're all on. I'm Bob Pittman, and welcome to this episode of Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing, where we explore success stories and some failures and the people behind them, focusing on that marketing and product success formula of strong analytics and powerful creative, math and magic. We have as our guest today someone who has an amazing track record of success, success that has always been built on well-crafted strategy 
and execution with both precision and passion. David Zasloff. He is the president and CEO of Discovery with over 3 billion viewers in over 220 countries. Lawyer, strategist, cable pioneer, deal maker, visionary, even one of the highest paid execs in the U.S. But what most people say about him is that he's a nice, polite, and concerned friend, a great guy. Actually, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say a bad word about him. Trust me, that's hard to pull off with a career as long and as diverse as David's. He is really that great. So here he is today, David Zasloff, with his ever-present smile. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. It's a pleasure for me to be here because you and I know each other for 30 years. Many, many years. You inspired me. You made the cable business cool and fun and hip, even though the industry as we looked at it was very uncertain those first few years. You inspired many of us, including me, that uh, this is what we wanted to do with our lives. You are very nice. And by the way, you inspire me and inspire others today. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to get started. Before we get into the meat of it, I want to do you in 60 seconds. We can have fun with it. Ready? Okay. Do you prefer vanilla or chocolate? Chocolate chip mint. <laughs> Twitter or Instagram? Instagram. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Shark week or puppy bowl? <laughs> Shark week because it's a week. <laughs> Manhattan or Brooklyn? I live in Manhattan, but I'm a Brooklyn boy. That's where I grew up, so my heart's still in Brooklyn. Golf or tennis? Pretty bad at golf, but it's what I play. It's what I enjoy doing now. Sunrise or sunsets? Sunrise. That's my thing. I get up at a quarter to five in the morning. Oof. I love to be out while everyone's asleep. McEnroe or Connors? McEnroe, definitely. Mythbusters or Deadliest Catch? I think Deadliest Catch because it really created a new genre of adventure. What's your favorite country outside the U.S.? Israel. Boats or planes? I'm a little claustrophobic, so this answer may surprise you, but plane. With boats, you're stuck on them for an awful long time. What did you want to be when you were growing up? I thought I wanted to be a lawyer because my dad was a lawyer and he loved it. When I became a lawyer, it was pretty quick once I started working that I realized it was the wrong choice for me. It's one of the reasons that I have built a very big internship program at Discovery because I think getting a summer of experience is a great opportunity to see what you like and see what you don't before you really vest yourself for a long time. Well, you have a legendary intern program, so you're doing it well. Okay, let's jump into it. Fourteen years ago, you made the move, the big move, from NBC to be the CEO of Discovery. Just recently, Discovery took the top spot in the key advertising demo, Women 2554. There was a lot of noise about it in the industry. You unseated NBC from their long leadership position. I know that was a surprise for many people, but not you. You started this journey with Discovery at a time when NBC and the other broadcast networks were still far ahead. Did you ever dream this was going to happen back in 2007? It is really a big moment because cable, with a lot of hard work by building niches, gained real viewership and advertiser support and respect, but it was always the big broadcasters. That was the big platform. And so early this summer, when we aggregated together HGTV, ID, Food, TLC, and OWN, we had the top five channels in America for women. We were bigger than not only all the broadcasters, but we were bigger than the broadcasters plus their cable networks together. It just reinforces that it doesn't matter what platform you're on. You need great content that, and tell great stories that people want to spend time with. At Discovery, we have a real advantage now because... 
there's lots of scripted content out there and scripted movies. And there are lots of channels out there that people go to for a show. But most of our channels are about passion groups and we're trying to super serve people that like a particular thing. So Food Network. When you get up in the morning, you might put that on because you love Bobby Flay or you love Giada or you just love food. HGTV, Discovery, Science Channel, ID because you love crime. In this world where people could watch anything, it becomes harder and harder to curate when you have unlimited choice. And so we have channels that curate for you. When we started together 30 years ago, there were three or four broadcasters, and it was a big deal to offer people five or six or seven cable channels. I remember 15. Oh, my God, 15 (laughs) channels. And then there was going to be 100. But now the problem with unlimited choice is it creates anxiety and confusion. And so I think curation is the real challenge for us in media, and it's the real challenge for individuals trying to figure out what do I want to watch, what do I do with my time, and we've tried to gravitate toward things people love. And that's a very different strategy than most media companies. When we started cable networks, the basic networks back in the late 70s, early 80s, the whole idea was narrowcast. We'd be these curated channels, and somehow all the channels over time sort of drifted away from being that pure this is music, this is kids, this is whatever, and you've sort of brought it back. Why do you think the industry drifted away from it? Well, I know why they drifted away, because you and I were involved in a lot of the channels, (laughs) and it's capitalism, profitability, so you can create a channel, or maybe it's a history channel, maybe it's a kid's channel, and you look at what your audience is, and for each niche, you can estimate about how big that audience is going to be. And when you do a good job within that niche and you reach a limit and you go for more growth, often what you need to do is go outside of who you really are. Right. If you look at the history of our industry, it's been a very short-term gain strategy. Maybe you could put on a couple of shows that are outside your niche and grow, but in the long term, you alienate an audience because when they go to you, they kind of expect a certain thing out of you. When they get disappointed, it's very easy to lose a viewer. And so we think at least within the traditional TV world, we really need to stay true to what these brands are. So we turn away a lot of content that maybe we could put on food or HG and really stretch it out that might get a bigger number. But ultimately it's about people saying, that's what I'd expect to see on food. That's a lot of fun to watch on food, but not why is that on the Food Network? Do you find that with the advertisers that support these channels, that this is a benefit, having this very tight and clear purpose? Absolutely. The length of view is more. We sell a lot of products within the home and food category or cooking category. We have a car channel called Motor Trend. And in each of those cases, we have a lot of advertisers that just advertise on us because they want to reach an affinity group that has a passion for a particular product. As the world changes, it doesn't really matter if you have a free-to-air channel or a cable channel. It's the content that you have, and people want to consume that content on any platform. And so how do we aggregate more and better IP? We could talk about some of the chances we've taken. We've been successful in some areas, and some it's way too early to tell, and some have not worked out so well, because we're all trying to figure out where the ball is going to be. You know, the flavor of the month right now are these scripted series and scripted movie services. And whether it's Disney Plus or HBO or Netflix or Amazon, Showtime, they're trying to appeal to everyone. And I think ultimately people will probably buy three or four of them. But we see ourselves as almost like a magazine rack. You may watch scripted series and scripted movies, but you still love science. You still love food. You still want to go out and buy your food magazine. So you waited to get your golf magazine because you're passionate about golf. 
you love Oprah Winfrey and you love her values and what she has to say. And so that's how we have really changed the way we look at the business. Let the rest of the industry really fight over scripted series and scripted movies and try and be almost like the way cable started, as you said, very narrow. We don't need a big group of people. If they're really passionate about food and they're going to spend a lot of time with us on any platform, we could build a good business around that and we could nourish the audience. So with the scripted series and movies, is that going more and more commercial free? It seems to me today that when someone's looking at a movie, looking at a series, they expect no commercials in it. Whereas the kind of content you have, commercials go with an expectation of the content they're getting. People are consuming more content than they ever have, but they're consuming it on different platforms. And as a result of that, a lot of the scripted series and movies on TV have declined. So you see broadcast declining significantly. Some of the more broad cable networks that were nourished by scripted series or movies that were being rerun and rerun are declining quickly. And so it's one of the reasons why we've emerged with our group of channels as the number two or three media company in America and number one for women. You've been through the business in so many roles. How do you think about the rebalancing of the power players in TV? When you went to Discovery, no one thought this is going to be the major media company in America, and here you are today. And there's some others that you looked at and said, they'll always be there, and they're not. When I went to Discovery, we had Discovery Channel, we had Animal Planet, and we had TLC. And it was called the Learning Channel, and that was basically it. And our international business was very small. We determined that we were going to lean forward and take a lot of risk. We created the Oprah Winfrey Network. Big risk. Big risk, and a lot of challenges. And Oprah and I fought for three or four years to find the right voice for that channel and to create content that would really nourish an audience. And we didn't launch that channel intending it to be a channel for African-American women. But in the end, there was a void in the market, and Oprah's voice and taste and her ultimate drive to create quality premier content for African-Americans and seeing that that wasn't being done, we were able to build the number one channel for African-American women. We launched ID, Investigation Discovery, which is now the number one channel in America for women. That didn't exist. True crime podcasts do very well, too. <laughs> CBS for many years was the number one broadcast right. network. There's something about crime that's very primitive. We start every show on ID with, there's a murder, then we do a close-up of someone's face, and there's a tear. And we all have that innate question of what happened, who did it, and could it happen to us? Right. We also launched a car channel called Motor Trend. Most media companies were defending their existing channels. If you were at Viacom, you were defending MTV and VH1 and Nickelodeon. If you were at Time Warner, you were defending TNT and TBS and CNN, and they did a great job of it. We decided that we were really going to try and grow, and so we launched a lot of new channels. We acquired scripts, so we were able to get HGTV and cooking and food and DIY. And then we went over to Europe, where most media companies have been a little wary, but we invested a lot of money in Europe and Latin America. and I think probably more than anyone else in the U.S. media business. By a lot. Today, we're the largest international media company. We have 12 channels in every country. We've even gotten into free-to-air across Europe, and we have Eurosport, which is the ESPN of Europe. Of Europe. But we have a lot of losses not only did we make a lot of mistakes, but we had a deficit invest. So we had a great shareholder group, John Malone and Bob Myron and the Newhouse family, for the first 25 years of our company, took no money out of Discovery. So most of media, traditional media in America, at the end of every year, there was a certain amount of profit 
they took that money out. In discovery at the end of every year, we said, where can we invest this for growth? And so we're now the most profitable international business, but for many years, we were investing and in a lost position. Did you ever worry that maybe you made a mistake and it wasn't gonna turn profitable? Absolutely. In many cases, we launched channels that worked in a lot of countries and in other countries didn't work at all. In some cases, we built great businesses. We built a great business in Russia. And then the media rules changed where non-Russian companies could not own more than 20% of a media business. So we had to restructure and fully divest our way out. Latin America was a fantastic business for us for 10 years. And then the economies turned upside down and they were struggling. And then Europe was good for us. And then Europe started to slow down. And then we had a great run in Asia. And so we're in 220 countries. There's a lot of risk. The positive is we've built a lot of competence. We have teams on the ground in every country. We have a sense of how to do business around the world. And as the world has become more global, we're in this unique position of having content in language in every country in the world. And it gives us more of a perspective on media. It also gives us more diversity. It's always like a portfolio. In the media industry, you're known as one of the great strategists. As companies are built, CEOs have three options. You make, buy, or partner. Scripps is a great example of buy. Oprah is a perfect example of partner. And maybe Deadliest Catch is the great build example. How do you think about those three options? You've got your strategy in place. Does the strategy come with one of those, or do you examine all three against every leg of the strategy you're getting ready to execute? I think ultimately you have to try and figure out where you think people are going to be consuming content and try and figure out how you're going to get the stuff that people are going to want and put it on the platforms where they're going to want to see it. A great example of that is for my first 10 years at Discovery, up until four or five years ago, people weren't consuming content on phone screens. They were making phone calls, they were texting, but they weren't consuming content really until the last five years. Netflix was only accelerating and the ability to move content around from different platforms was just beginning. So for my first 10 years, I was operating in a pretty traditional business. We were running cable channels, launching channels around the world, launching free to air channels and putting content on those platforms and trying to get as many people to watch as possible. What made it traditional was the place that they watched content was on a TV set. And so we kind of had a walled stadium <laughs> and we had a pretty good sense of what we were doing and who our competition was because there was really only one place to consume rich content and that was the TV. It started to become pretty clear about four or five years ago that everyone was going to have a screen in their hand. People were going to be able to consume anything they want as opposed to just what's on the schedule on a TV set. We started asking the question, what will people watch when they could watch anything? which is very different than what will people watch when they could watch anything that's on the TV set on those 50 channels in France or in Italy. Right. And so it required looking again at our content and trying to figure out, do we have the right mix of IP, of content? And we came to the conclusion, even though the company was doing great at the time, that we need to do a full reset. And I think we came to this probably earlier than anyone else because one of the great assets we have at Discovery is one of our largest shareholders is John Malone. And he's a great strategic thinker. He sees the world almost like a Bobby Fisher. And it was John over a weekend that said, we have all this great content for cable channels and free to air channels. But if people could watch anything on any platform, how would we do? And I looked at him and I said, uh, I don't think we'd do that well. I think we'd have a real problem. Had you thought about the phone? 
as a viewing platform? I did, but I was thinking about it not coming for a lot longer. And so we really, we changed the whole strategy of the company. It was really based more on intuition and instinct. But if we wanted content that people were going to watch when they could watch anything, we said to ourselves, what is that? The first thing that came to mind was sports. If you really love tennis, you're going to want to watch the French Open or the U.S. Open. If you really love golf, you're going to want to be able to watch the PGA Tour. If you really love cycling, you're going to want to watch Tour de France. And so we looked at Eurosport. It had three sports channels in every country in all of Europe. If it was available to buy, we would have bought it. But our only way of getting into sports at that point was to partner. Partner. So we partnered. And it turned out good because we learned a lot from them. They were quite good and sports was new to us. But then as soon as we had the opportunity to buy, we bought them out. And then we went on a buying spree with sports in Europe and around the world. Did people think you were crazy doing that? At the time they did. Yeah, I remember. Um, because the margins on sports were much lower. Those were big bets. But we had real conviction that we needed great content that people were watching no matter what. We also recognized what we were good at and what we weren't. We're not a movie company. We've done some scripted content, but there were a lot of media companies that were a lot bigger than us that understood scripted content much better than we did. And so we weren't going to win by trying to become a great scripted series company or become a movie company. It wasn't what we did. We were a nonfiction company. We understood how to tell stories. And sports to us was really something that was attainable. We felt like if we stuck with just Discovery and Animal Planet and Science and TLC, that if media is a poker hand, we didn't have the right cards. And it's a guess. And we made a lot of mistakes in sports. What was your biggest mistake in sports? When we bought Eurosport, our ambition was to be the leader in sports all across Europe. We did it, but we invested probably more than we should have. And we bought most of what was available. There were multiple bidders for football or soccer across Europe, country by country. They want to get the most premier sport. And we participated in some of those auctions because we felt like in Germany, we need the Bundesliga, which is like the NFL. But it was so expensive that it overflowed the boat. Whereas it was very efficient because there weren't multiple bidders for us to own all the majors in tennis or own all the cycling. Over a couple of years, we learned that we're better off staying away from football because it's so, so expensive and so risky. And we were able to pick up most of the other sports for much more of a reasonable price. And more importantly, we were able to get it for long term. When you buy football in Europe, you only get it for three years and then you got to bid again. Whereas we got the Olympics for a decade. Having some time to develop an audience and to figure out how to present that content and then to grow an asset around it takes time. And so one of our big strategies around sports was don't do short-term deals anymore. Just hold on a second because we've got so much more to talk about. We'll be back after a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. 
And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my from this idea of what do, is that? Is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know. Oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Campbell, And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math and Magic. We're here with David Zasloff. Let's go back a little bit. Born in Brooklyn, grew up in Brooklyn, moved to Rockland County. I was sort of at that moment where a lot of people were leaving cities, going to the suburbs. Paint a picture of life then. I mean, what kind of childhood did you have and what was America like at that moment that you hit Rockland County? I love Brooklyn. We were on the sixth floor of an apartment building and we had a two-bedroom apartment. I shared a room with my older brother and my younger brother was in my parents room we had a little den I thought it was the greatest thing ever I moved when I was in second grade it was a little scary when I went to Rockland County because we bought a house and when we bought a house I had my own room it was a little scary at first I was used to sharing a room with my brother everything was bigger there was lots of grass there wasn't a lot of grass uh, in Brooklyn but I loved it Rockland County was a great very diverse community it was a middle class lower middle class area we went there because we can get four bedrooms and two-car garage. My dad was a lawyer, 
super hard worker. He was up at 5.30 every day, and my mom was a teacher. You know, Warren Buffett once talked about my generation being the great beneficiary because when my mom was growing up, there weren't as many fair choices for really bright, educated women, and the opportunities were limited. And so my mom went into teaching. So she was home when I got home. She read to us every night. And I think there's a whole generation of us that grew up with really great teachers. My mom was a teacher too. So we, For yeah. those same reasons. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the wrong reasons. Right. But the beneficiary was, I think, the education system. But Rockland was great. And you were just inducted into the Remapo High School Hall of Fame. Sports Hall of Fame. Sports Hall of Fame right. as a tennis player. I learned a lot from tennis. When I was very young, I was very good. Althea Gibson saw me play and wanted to take me on. And so she was giving me instruction for nothing as a young talent. And I thought I was talented at the time. When I was 10 and 12, I was really very good. When I was in junior high school, they restructured my day in junior high school so I didn't have to go to the last two periods so I can go up to play on the varsity high school team. It became part of who I thought I was. I just thought I was always going to be really good just because I was talented. I was winning a lot as a young kid. And when I got to the 14s and 16s, some of the players that I used to beat started beating me. A couple of the players in the New York area that I would play with, I'd meet them, we'd play for two hours, and then they'd stay for another two or three hours and hit backhands. But when I got there, they had been there for two hours, working on forehands or serving. I came to learn that talent is only a very small portion of what creates success. I got to see a lot of guys blow right by me, and it was painful by the end. I was nowhere close to as good as I could have been. And so my big lesson from tennis was I'm not going to get outworked again. If your 18-year-old self saw you today, what would he think? How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't have dreams of this as a kid? No. I was a lawyer at a firm called LaBeouf Lamb. It was Dewey LaBeouf, a big white shoe firm. And I took that job and I got an apartment and had a big rent and I needed to make it work. And I stayed there for four years, but I knew pretty early on, I'm not that great at this and I don't like it that much. I worked really hard, so I think they thought I was pretty good at it, but it didn't feel right to me. I got lucky because a partner transferred in who worked at MTV, who's now federal court judge, Richard Berman. Sure. And he had a lot of cable clients. He also was a tennis player and I was quietly unhappy. And I found out Rich was a tennis player and we went and played tennis a couple of times and then we had a weekly game. Next thing you know, I was doing all this cable work. Yeah, you were doing work for MTV? For MTV. And Discovery back then, too? For Discovery, for CNN, for most of the media companies. But the real opportunity that I got was Jack Welch. He and Bob Wright, who was the chairman of NBC at the time, said they want to get into the cable business, which at the time was unusual because broadcasters were not in the cable business. So I sent a letter to them saying, I love the cable business. I have a great passion for it. I've done a lot of work. If you're going to build a cable division, I'd love to be part of it. And they called me over. I remember Bob Wright wrote on the top of it, bring this kid in. I was the third or fourth person hired. For NBC Cable. For NBC Cable. Through that, I built a relationship with Jack Welch. Who still loves you today. And that love created all of this confidence in me. It created a willingness to fail, a drive to work hard. But mostly, I got to be in all these meetings that he was in. And I got to see firsthand, whether it was around cable or around broadcast, you begin to know the questions that he's going to ask, how he sees the world. When I 
see you as a business person. Am I seeing some Jack Welch too? There's no question. You are deeply influenced by the people that you work with. I got to work with Jack Welch. And I also got to work with Bob Wright, who ran NBC. And they were very different. But by spending 18 years at that company and going to meetings and quarterly reviews and business reviews, you think that you have the right question. But it's the question that Jack would ask. Steve Ross was that for me, founder of Warner Communications. Right, of course. Warner. So I had Jack. And the second half of my career, I had John Malone. These are two of the greatest leaders, entrepreneurs. Right. And that's lucky. That 18-year-old kid could never imagine that he would have had the chance to learn from and hang around with Jack Welch. That 18-year-old kid would never believe that he would have a chance to spend Saturday mornings talking to John while he walks the dog and hear how he sees the world and tell him what I'm thinking about and talk about where the world is going and how to succeed. So you made a jump from partner to law firm. NBC. Did you have to take a pay cut to do it? 50% pay cut. Everyone thought I was crazy, including the people at the law firm. What's the lesson in that for somebody who's building their career? Here you are, you had a nice career as a lawyer, working with interesting people, and you took a 50% pay cut to make a jump somewhere. You got to try and figure out what you really love doing, what you're interested in. As a lawyer, I knew it wasn't going to work when I was writing prospectuses in the corporate department. And we sat at lunch one day after about six or nine months And a partner came over and said that there was a change to the disclosure laws that the SEC came out with and that from now on, there's going to be a new way that you write paragraph 12B6. (laughs) And I was at a table with like six really bright people that I really liked that were doing the same thing as me. And they lit up. They were excited. I remember thinking to myself, I could care less. And I thought, how am I going to compete with this group? They're bright, they're hardworking, and they love this stuff. I remember going home that day and thinking to myself, I got to find something else that I love. That's the journey I think that we're all on. And that's what I tell our interns, that you may be in PR, you may be in marketing, you may be in programming, but if you're working at one of our channels, you get to see all of it. Try and imagine, would you want to be that person? And a successful internship might be that you didn't love PR, but you got to look at marketing and you thought, maybe that's for me. And I think if by age 30, you could figure out you can move your way around so you can get yourself into something that you're excited about, that you really love, then it's a gift. You started out, I think, as general counsel of NBC Cable, worked through business affairs, business development, became president of NBC Cable, president of NBC Universal Cable. You didn't want to be a lawyer. What did you discover in that that was sort of your superpower, your skill that really made you, you? I loved the business, so I was happy. (laughs) I was happy to be there and grateful to be there. And figuring out how to get along with people. Because NBC was a pretty complicated place. We had to work across a lot of divisions. If we wanted to do anything, we had to also go up to GE and present to the GE board. So there were a lot of layers and a lot of different people. And it was figuring out how to get along and how to find support. You know, I think about you, and there are two things that come to mind. One, strategist. And two, you have this incredible people skills. You get people to talk, listen well, Was that developed or was that a basic skill you had that sort of came to life in the right circumstance? I do love people. We're all imperfect. Everyone has a few things that you admire. Look for the best in people. There's a Brooklyn element of be candid. But also, I'm pretty emotional at times. And one of the things that Jack worked with me on was that it's not show friends, it's show business. Part of your job is to get along with everyone. If you're having a real conflict, 
and it's creating an issue, there is no right and wrong. So you just got to try and figure a way around it. And often there are personalities. There are some people that just want conflict. And there are ways you can just step away from it. Let them go argue with someone else. You got to stay away from that negative energy. Positive energy is the most important thing you need in a company to succeed. Personally, positive energy is the thing that a company itself needs to succeed. Every idea you have to will to happen. And part of that will is positive energy. We'll figure it out. We'll keep trying, and when we find something they like, we'll give them more of it. That's sort of what the media business is about, trying to figure out with every one of our channels, what do they like? And then we get a rating. We find out how many people watched, how long did they watch for. It's not what we think is going to be people should see on Food Network or on the Oprah Winfrey Network or on Discovery. We're really trying to nourish an audience. The better job we do, the more they watch and the more shows they watch. When you were at NBC... How hard was it to get support for your plans? I mean, you grew the business. As you say, you were one of the first people hired at NBC Cable, became NBC Universal, and you built out this incredible array of networks. Were people leaning into cables the thing we got to go? Or as you said earlier, with everybody saying, you're stealing my money from broadcast, was it really tough slog to grow? Well, first, it's never one person. I was the guy that in the beginning that carried the bags. And there were a lot of brilliant people that were there with me in those early days that were very courageous. Bob Wright was one. A guy named Tom Rogers was fighting every day to build that business. Anytime you see a business, it's multiple people. It was a big group of us. We did face some real challenges. I remember there was a great programmer at NBC at the time named Don Omar. Oh, gosh, Really yes. like a legend. Genius. By the way, started the VMAs with us at MTV. Really? He was at Nabisco, and he said, I got an idea for an award show. If you do it with me, I'll sponsor it. And he created the Skins game and golf. He just had that touch. And I remember being in a meeting once, and it was Jack Welch. It was Bob Wright, who was running NBC at the time. There was Don Olmeyer running entertainment. Dick Ebersole, another great legend, great friend of mine, was running sports. Andy Lack was running news. I was 35 at the time, and I remember thinking to myself, how did this happen? How, how am I in this room? But we were in one meeting, and CNBC was losing significant money. We were invested with Chuck Dolan in AMC, in Bravo, in News 12 Long Island. We had invested in sports channels with Cablevision, and everything was losing money, real money at the time. And Don Omeyer stood up and said, we're losing all this money in cable. For the amount of money we're losing in cable, I could do five more pilots for NBC. This is nuts. Give me the money. Let me do five more pilots. It was Welch's drive to say, I don't care how much money we're losing. The audience eventually, I think, is going to go to cable and we have to invest. Don's passion was real because there was a limited amount of resources. He ended up being hugely successful with the resources he had. Yes. But when NBC sold that business to Comcast, 80% of the profits of that business was from the cable business. That vision of investing in the next medium and that drive to do it, even with the losses, really paid off. And it's one of the things that when I got to Discovery 14 years ago, it gave me real conviction for launching new channels and getting out and building businesses outside the U.S. When they started to lose, I had that feeling of like I've been here before. We have to figure out how to grow. You make the jump from NBC to Discovery. Why? A big piece was that Discovery was a great company. It had great ownership, the Newhouse family and John Malone. I was very close to both of them. 
and they really wanted me to come. So it was like I was going to a family, and a family that I loved and that I admired. And it was a chance to run my own company with some real autonomy. When I went to Discovery, the real drive was, how do we grow this? How do we grow it in the U.S.? How do we grow it around the world? What else should we be buying? And Discovery itself was a brand that really had the ability not just to entertain, but when Discovery was at its best, it had a chance to really inspire. After I got to Discovery, we did Planet Earth. That's a great example of a piece of content that really did more than just entertain. It helped people fall in love again with the planet. And it's hard to really care about something if you haven't fallen in love with it. Planet Earth really had an impact. By the way, still does. I remember thinking to myself, that's why I'm here. This isn't just about making money. This isn't just about growing audience. This is about having an impact. I followed what you did with great admiration at MTV when you took MTV around the world and had a huge impact with culture and fashion. And we took discovery and science around the world. And in certain cases, we made the demonstrable decision that we'll probably never make money in this country. But the idea that we could take science and discovery into countries around the world and that kids could put the TV set on and they could watch this content, it could have some impact. And so there really was that real drive within the ownership to do well, but it was also to really do some good. And that's part of the culture that still exists. And I think it's one of the reasons we attract so much great talent at Discovery. How would you describe the culture at Discovery, your corporate culture? Make sure you respect other people. People should be able to come to a creative company and feel safe and feel valued. We're great record on equal pay. We really have a chance creatively to make a difference. That's where we try and distinguish ourselves. When you came to Discovery, you really made a mark quickly. Probably one of the most interesting things is what you did with the programming. We talked about Deadliest Catch earlier. What was the thinking there? Where did that idea come from that this is the direction we're going? It was more of a basic point, which is the future of this business is about owning great content globally and creating great content and telling great stories and also having characters that people love, whether it's Micro on Dirty Jobs, whether it's Sig and Phil on Deadliest Catch, Jamie and Adam on Mythbusters. That was kind of the formula. Great content, great characters. Ultimately, we were going to try and save as much money as possible by running as an efficient business. We broke the company in half. Everything that's not on the screen, let's get really aggressive about every penny so that we could spend more money on the screen. When I got there, I think we were spending about $300, $400 million on content. Today, we're spending $4.5 billion. And so the whole journey of Discovery has been spend more and more money on content and own that content everywhere in the world. We were talking earlier about the phone and where are people going to consume your product. You were very early in jumping to digital. Discovery Go, you've done the Group 9 deal, you've got lots of plays there. How do you think about the merger of digital and TV networks and their content and brands? We're hedging in a lot of different areas. The number one thing that we're doing is we're owning all of our content. We did buy a significant interest in a business called Group 9, right. which owns now this. It's the leading provider of news for people 25 and under. Most of what we did a couple of years ago was long-form content. And now we're one of the leaders in short-form content and mid-form content. Now, short-form and mid-form are not making money today, 
But we've built a great group of storytellers that are generating six, seven, eight billion views a month of short form content. And we've built that expertise into our company, which over the long term, we think is going to really be an advantage. Do you think this is like in the days at NBC Cable when Don Olmeyer says, they're losing all that money, give it to me, that you're investing for the future and this will have the same kind of outcome as cable did against broadcast? I don't know. This is a moment where if you have chips, you got to decide, I'm not in this for the long term and I'm not going to invest in a lot of new stuff. I'm going to generate as much near-term value as possible and sell the company. Time Warner had that strategy. Right. Jeff Bukas is a great leader, right. and he was going to build that company to get the most value for shareholders. There are a lot of companies in media that are being run that way. When Bob Iger said, I'm going to try and build Disney Plus and ESPN Plus to 150 million homes, watch me over the next five years, he took the opposite strategy, which is I'm all in in the future. And I'm going to take my IP and I think I can create some new platforms. I can create a competitor to Netflix. I can create a sports Netflix type product. Five years from now, I'm going to have a more successful company, but I'm going to lose a lot of money in the meantime. We're focused really in the same vein as Bob. We're betting for the long term. So we are where I think GE was when they invested in NBC, but we're just much more diversified. We're not sure which one of these assets are going to end up being the big. Is it going to be group nine? Is it going to be the fact that we have the greatest natural history and science global library in the world? Is it going to be all the sports that we own? Certainly all of them right. will not be successful, but we're going to use all of our energy and will to have them be successful over the next couple of years. And it's going to take all that positive energy and will to make it happen. So we wrap up each episode as a shout out to the folks who make math and magic work, the folks who provide the analytics, which I know you use a lot of, and the creatives who provide the magic. Who do you think's the greatest analytics person? If we want to give a shout out to the mathematician, who is it? John Malone. If we want to say who's the greatest creative, just that spark of a raw idea that turns out to be that idea that changes the world. Tom Freston. He's a great guy. Former guest here. Colleague of yours. You, you can go back and listen to his podcast, and you're exactly right. David, you have had an amazing life, an inspiring career, and you're a great pal. Congrats, and thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Here's what I learned from David. One, don't get outworked. It's something David has been thinking about since his tennis years. He wakes up early and outworks the competition because he believes, even if you have natural talent, hard work always wins the day. Two, take risk on the future now. Even if you're successful like Discovery was in the TV era, David believes you have to invest in the next medium so that you're well positioned when the industry inevitably changes. Three, David believes your company doesn't need to cater to everyone. If you go after passionate consumers and stay true to your brand, they'll keep coming back for the content they love. And fourth, when it comes to your career, David believes you should listen to your heart and stay vigilant. David knew a law career wasn't right for him you should still work hard, but be ready for an opportunity to make a move. Thanks for listening. I'm Bob Pittman. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. 
More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality starting May 8th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.